Welcome back to Top Lines and Tales. So this week's episode is kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition. Welcome to a slight variation on our history of UK and native livestock this week, in that we're not only studying the history of the breed, but the man who was responsible for it. Robert Bakewell lived from 1725 to 1795 and can be hailed perhaps as one of the most important agricultural figures in history. Himself from a long line of dignitaries that dated back 600 years to back towards Henry II, certainly some of his family did, and it was his grandfather who took over the tenancy of Dishley Grange in Leicestershire in 1693. And then his father took it over from him and continued to develop it and uh, positively encouraged his son uh, Robert III in pretty much everything he did from an early age. My guest today is cattle historian Clive Davis. Uh, Welcome back, Clive. Hi, Andy. Good to be with you. Clive, I believe you've studied Bakewell in quite a bit of detail. I think the from what I gather, the farm was 440 acres, three quarters of that being down to grazing. And uh, on this in 1770, anyway, he ran 60 horses, 400 sheep and 160 cows of various breeds. And that's an extremely dense cropping race, even for today's um, style. And he was unmarried, I gather. And the house at Dishley Grange was run by his sister, Hannah, and was quite some mansion, I think. And it had been a monastery originally, Clive. Yes, apparently so, Andy. I mean, the whole concept of Bakewell's life I find absolutely fascinating and the fact that he was ahead of his time so much so that a lot of his findings we haven't even taken on yet, as it were. You know, I I think it's an incredible story of the achievements of a man who worked with livestock. Of course, and it should be noted, I suppose, that other contemporaries of that time would be the likes of Turnip Townsend, a man who had already made great strides in the arable side of things, and of course Jethro Tull, who revolutionised a lot of farm machinery, including the invention of the seed drill. But Bakewell would have been born in a time, Clive, in the livestock world anyway, when animals were mainly used for draft, and that was his wanted to change them, particularly the cattle, of course, into into more meat-producing uh, stock that the nation was, was rapidly requiring uh, meat at that time. Yes, well, his life was sort of, the middle of his life was 100 years before Britain became urbanised as such, in that there were more urban people than, 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 than rural people, which was about in 1850. So, like, he was looking forward so much that he felt that people would need more food, and, and, and of course, he was spot on. And uh, uh, as you say, Andy, that, those uh, primitive cattle of, of the times of the early 1700s weren't meat yielding at all i mean that's what they ended up as as they were were removed from the plowing teams or from carting but even the sheep and that they, they were very poorly conformed in in the standard that we'd expect now and indeed in the standard that bakewell himself expected and uh, well that was one of his big sayings was that uh you know, you can't eat bone, we'll give them what they can eat. And uh, <laughs> and also, being a tenant farmer was so interesting. I mean, you've mentioned those other people. And Bakewell managed to mix with all sorts. I mean, King Farmer George III was, was a good friend of his. And uh, because of the king's interest in agriculture, of course, it helped Bakewell meet other people, I'm sure. And and so it it was a most fascinating life of a Leicestershire tenant farmer who really travelled the length and breadth of 
the UK, but he also brought in animals from Europe to improve those of his own, especially his horses. Um, so, like, he was a much-travelled man, which seems absolutely amazing in the time of the early 18th century. One of the sad things about that is he was a very private man, and we'll maybe go on to that in a minute as with the reason for that, but uh, being a private man, he didn't tend to write things down and tell people what he was doing and what he'd done and how he got there, so we're reliant a little bit on hearsay of people around that time and, and writers to, to give us this extraordinary story, such as the the great agriculturist Arthur Young, who pops up regularly on this this um, podcast when we're talking about history, somebody went round and said, documented all these things, and I think Arthur Young took a particularly interest in in Bakewell's uh, dealings. And and one of the things that said about him was that Bakewell was particularly kind to his animals, which in turn were known to be extremely placid. And I think perhaps back in the day, mm. there'd be a lot of drovers would be hitting animals with sticks. And I think the whole idea, understanding of being kind to an animal, it'd be kind back to you, and developing a placid animal is something that came through certainly in the longhorn breed which are, are renowned to be uh, um you know, a docile breed and, and and compared to some of the others we won't we won't mention well he was a very principled man i think and the uh, uh, you know reasonably religious fairly religious by today's standards probably i mean he, he wouldn't uh, sort of be working on sundays or as you say his upbringing from his, his parents and his grandfather and working with his sister and her family you know he's a very principled man and going back to your comment about his uh, records well I'm, sh I'm sure he did keep some but that's the most disappointing thing that those records of his own haven't been maintained that the reports that we have of his work are mostly through people like Arthur Young and Hewitt and people like that who who were regular contacts, friends of his indeed, and, and they would record things. And um, later on, I'm sure we'll talk about George Cully, who was a student of his. Well, they, they um, exchanged letters frequently, and thankfully some of those remain, and hopefully still do, um, in, in safekeeping in, yeah. in museums and agricultural institutions. And, and so we have got a pretty accurate view of work that he did do. What we haven't quite got is all the detail that he, he must have recorded in his work and his experiments, because that's what he was doing. He was experimenting. Yeah. And I think I think that it, it, he was the forerunner of, of our nation's um, need to find out more about agricultural methods and husbandry. Um, and so whilst his livestock sort of happens and carried on, on forever sort of thing at least the, the 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 scene that he set and the people that he inspired have been able to take this nation on as a great livestock breeding nation and um i regard him as the father of that mm -hmm. okay and, and and it would be wrong to say that some of it wasn't romanticized I'm, I'm sure as a lot of these things were certainly some of the paintings and drawings that we see take a poetic license to put things more extreme but i think we should have a lot of faith in arthur young he's certainly the man that seems to have been about and and, and recorded things Correctly. And if we move on, I mentioned earlier on the stock numbers that he had on the farm there. I mean, it's said that he, he was known to leave his calves on their mothers for quite a long time and a fairly simple task, really, that... Uh, but that required good grazing, and in, that would encourage mm. early growth in the animals by leaving them on their mother's milk. But the numbers that he had, Clive, the, 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 on a farm back in those days, he'd need some pretty good grazing. And uh, 
I, I think his secret was to house all the cattle in the winter and then use the manure from that to go on the grassland, something that's the bread and butter to all farmers these days and uh, unheard of yeah. at the time, wasn't it? And the winter stock would be housed and yeah. they fed on carrots and turnips and, again, new types of forage at the time. So it wasn't just about the animals. It was the whole husbandry side of it that made a farm so much more um, efficient. Well, the management of the farm, Andy, I mean, he, he was intent on improving his grass lay, so he ploughed and he reseeded. And, and then, as you point out, he, he fertilised, and, and that was the stored dung of the animals from the winter time. And he devised methods of collecting that uh, more effectively and efficiently. Um, he'd rather feed straw to the cattle because he felt that that's all they needed. Uh, well, not only all they needed, but I mean that was their principal form of their diet and to turn it into dung but then he found probably he needs some of that straw to absorb the, uh, the the urine and the liquid which of course have got nutrition in, within it um, so he, he kept developing those systems but most remarkably he invested into irrigation yeah um i think additionally grange was adjacent it was between two waterways um blackbrook to the north the river saw to the south so so he was able to utilize the water that those waterways gave but i mean he must have spent many or had helped to spend many many hours arranging these canals and, and ditches so as to to be able to move water around the farm um, and, and then he was able to sort of flood irrigate or, or, or however he must have done it like that um, and, th and then grow the grass that much better that he'd be cutting like four crops of hay in those days, of course, um, and it must have been absolutely mind-blowing to his neighbours. What I find fascinating there, Clive, is that he constructed a canal right through the middle of the farm, which was obviously, as you said, using it for irrigation, but then he suddenly realised that um, we've got this canal here that's flowing from one river to the other quite slowly, and, and then he used that canal to ship his crops back up towards the barn, so he was flowing the right direction, he'd, he'd load all the turnips on there onto a flat-bottom barge and, and let them float up to the other end, and then seemingly he decided not to use the barge and he just would throw the roots just into the canal knowing the turnip would float and then they'd go down the canal getting washed as they went and then come pick them out the other end ready washed and then he'd use that canal yeah. use that canal as well to to send the manure out from to the fields back down the river on the boat i mean what a what a smart thinking man to dig a river through your middle of your farm i don't think many people have done that in yeah. the last year or two well no well, i i i haven't met anybody who's done it since. like i said this fellow's way ahead of his time so we hadn't even tried half of the things that he was doing. thing about the turnips that makes me smile tremendously i think i think jo uh, arthur young uh, featured that in in his annals of agriculture uh, under the title navigation of turnips it, that to me sounds like something from blackadder to me uh, but, but what a smart fella mm -hmm. indeed indeed and we move on to some of the things that he bred and of course he's known for two three four different breeds but we'll start with the sheep uh, clive and neither of us are maybe a experts in and there's not a great deal of history about the, the sheep that he did but there would be a few other local sheep breeders such as joseph alam uh, uh, around there so, but once bakewell set about specializing in improving the type of sheep he wanted he'd used sheep from other areas rather than his local ones and he used sheep from from lincolnshire originally to get his foundation stock to breed what became the the dishly leicester which was obviously his, his own breed and at the time when a lot of the sheep around there would be god-awful specimens really he, he had a a clean sheet to start and create something that almost like Frankenstein that 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 wasn't really around him. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that Alan fellow was, uh, you know, he must have been an interesting chap if we could have found out more about him because I think he started to make improvements to the sheep in those Midland counties. But uh, certainly uh, Bakewell's drive to produce more meat from less inputs meant that he wanted a fairly compact sheep compared to... Um, you know, the sort of native sheep of that area, which would just be described as uh, bony and, and, and uh, lanky and uh, uh, perhaps not very well wool, because, um, you know, a good fleece on a sheep adds to its appearance of a good doing sheep. And so he, he brought in genetics from the Lincoln Longwalls, which um, obviously, uh, you know, a big framey sheep. I mean, I'm just capable of shearing sheep, but I think if I saw one Lincoln, I wouldn't want to shear a second, you know. And I th- and so he was using those genetics that were available to him. But of course, what whatever he bred, Andy, his main theme was breeding in and in, as he would call it. I'll call it line breeding. You can call it whatever you like. And so what what he did, he selected breeding stock that uh, was desirable to use and then started to concentrate those breed lines together so that over a period of four or five, six generations, you've got a very high concentration. In fact, he was probably using sires on daughters with all the species that, that he worked with, and he worked with all the species. Um, uh, and with these sheep, he was particularly successful in, in getting a result. I, I have seen um, somewhere read about sort of the dimensions of the sheep. And I mean, his sheep were standing in probably about 30, his rams 30 inches, mm-hmm. probably at the shoulder. So they were fairly tight. If he'd made the sheep smaller and they were still 30 inches at the shoulder, they were still some pretty substantial animals, um, you know, and, and, and getting on for a good lot of length in them too. Um, and, and so he, he did develop the, these uh, Dishley Lesters um, in, in, into some pretty formidable tools. Um, and then, of course, other people became interested in what he was doing and began to use his bloodlines. Then he developed the Dishley Society, which was all about uh, hiring of rams and there were loads of rules associated and everybody had to toe the line, including that if they were at a meeting and they went missing from it, they received a fine for how long they were away. And so, I mean, it was it was all a very well organised set up in the end. And uh, thankfully he did it because I, I'm sure that the movement of the sheep from his farm in Leicestershire and, of course, right up to where Peter is there in the Scottish borders, which has given us the border Leicester and the blue-faced Leicester south of the border, um, those, like, are major, major sheep breeds nowadays. The influence they've had over my lifetime, the last 50 years, um, you know, so his name much lives on in the sheep world, particularly with these British genetics. And then, of course, um, they've been sort of the Dishley Lester was put into many other breeds. 
So as you say, the, not only did the Leicester breed go on and become the basis for the Custer Blue Leicester and the Border Leicester, two of the strongest sheep breeds in the UK and a lot of them around the world, but of course they, uh, they were introduced to a lot, a lot of other breeds to improve them and in a lot of cases to put a bit more size and, and, and strength into them. One thing I will say, and I think we'll touch on this with Peter when we get on a little bit further down the line with the cattle side of it, is that he was starting breeding from big stock and he, he would start with two or three animals and, and line breeding from big stock and it is. Is we probably all know that it's a lot easier to breed them smaller than it is to start with small ones and breed them bigger. And I think maybe we'll leave that and touch on that with the cattle in a minute. But that is an interesting policy that some of these animals were so huge that uh, at least you've got a, a big frame to start with. You're absolutely right there, Andy. I quite concur with what you, you've just said. Equally, though, and this is what Bakewell was well aware of, and you've, you've intimated at it with regards to his stocking density, like livestock breeding isn't what any individual animal is it's what you can make it of the system that you're using and it's all down to in my language what you can do with an acre of land Mm -hmm. and therefore whilst those animals may be larger or smaller or longer or shorter or thicker or fatter or leaner whatever they are it's what you can produce off that acre of land. Uh, and this was Bakewell's big driver. It was a matter of make, of forming animals that could work and survive of limited feed input. I take his horses, for instance. I mean, um, he was looking for the, for the power that a working horse needed. And he, he was basically the, the, the start of the Shire horse. Um, but black horses were his favourite because obviously in, in Suffolk, they've got the Suffolk punch and they were more red in their colour. And, and of course, the locals in Suffolk thought they were the world's best horse. And, and Bakewell tended to agree with them on occasions when he saw some very good examples. But that was the driver for him to make something slightly better. And um, I know very, very little about equine. What I find an interesting statistic, because people often talk about the development of livestock and what we should be looking for in this, but they very rarely put statistics on it that can can accurately describe it. I've seen it said of Bakewell, and he, he's described his ideal horse. Basically, the thing should fall into two thirds along it. So it's, it's head, it's shoulders, it's, it's barrel, it's hind quarter. But what, it, what I read, which was, I found, I found very interesting, was from its shoulder to its hip should be no more than the width of its barrel. Well, you imagine, well, if you, you know, these horses are some fair things. They must have been a hell of a lot of width in them, you know. Wouldn't want to ride that one with my short legs anyway, that's for sure. <laughs> no, and I'm shorter than you, Andy. But, but, I mean, this is the sort of specification that Bakewell got into, and I'm sure he did it with, with, with his farmed livestock, his cattle and his sheep and his pigs that he worked with. Um, that's the information that it's so sad that we haven't got, really, because I think that would reflect on us that best picture. Picture. And then coming back to your comment about it's easier to breed them smaller than larger, we know it is, but what it's all about is producing so much per acre, and this was Bakewell's big driver, and that's what formed his degree of thinking throughout his life okay let's go back and and, and have a look just at some of the, those sheep and the wool obviously was valuable at the time and the, the dishley leicester mm. was a medium wool sheep especially compared to the lincoln as you mentioned but uh, bakewell it was about reduction of fat mutton and back then that was a staple diet of the poorer man where they would have the sort of fat part of mutton and wouldn't be costing a lot and he knew that he could produce this and start feeding a nation who were who were who were part starving i suppose 
uh, and this mm. sort of new breeding superseded anything else before it with, with regards to producing mutton by four or five fold and weathers were killed at two years old and it would often be you know, two or three inches of fat on the ribs by, by that age, two or three inches and then mm. it, it's also said that compared to other breeds such as the Norfolk and the Leicester would have you know, half the amount of bone so twice the fat, half the bone, it's a winner isn't it and two years old was the optimum age regarding to the level of fat but <coughs> some had been taken to extremes and it's known to have up to seven inches of fat to be seen on a three-year-old uh, Clive although the beast's mobility might be extremely compromised by by such obesity seven inches of fat how about that 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 get the pound going yeah that that would cook pretty well wouldn't it I would say but of course that like Bakewell was a very keen advocate of sort of natural feeding methods so um that performance needed to come from the genetic value of the animal rather than the food that was taken in because he certainly he, like he he wouldn't be too pleased with us importing soya from the southern hemisphere nowadays i mean that wasn't on his radar at all um it was what you could produce off the farm that you had the livestock capable of transferring that into edible protein and whilst he was talking about early maturity yet his his killing sheep were two years old. Obviously, we've yet improved upon that, you know, that we can get lambs to slaughter at 12 to 14 weeks. So, um, uh, but, but I mean, he was the start of this thing and a remarkable man for it. And, and the, just moving on, the trials, he did two trials of his own sheep against other sheep, local breeds, such as the Norfolk and the Wiltshire and uh, something called the Herefordshire, which I guess would be the Ryland. And I imagine there'd be a, yeah. a south down in there that was sort of starting to come in at, at the time. In seven. 1885, the trials that he did was one uh, by the Durham sheep, whatever the Durham sheep was, I'm not sure which, ate 498 pounds of turnips in a year and weighed in at 290 pounds. So that's that's some some intake, half a ton of turnips in, in, in a year. And then... Um, a yeah. uh, quarter of a ton of turnips, should I say? And then, but th- that was nearly double um, the amount of, of food that the Ryland ate, and and uh, it was nearly double the size as well. So the, the the Leicester pitched itself somewhere in the middle of that where it could. So he'd be he'd be taking in food efficiency, wouldn't he? As well, he'd be measuring for how much they ate through a winter versus how much you know, they were. Of course, weighed, he would have been there. We are. It's, it's it's what he could do with his acre of land, you know. And yeah. uh, and also, of course, he liked to see these other breeds and around him because I'm sure. Or in some way or other, he'd ensure that the Dishley was looking the best or sort of the best performer. Um, and, of course, then his visitors would be able to see that the, the sheep from other parts weren't performing quite as well as these Dishley Lesters, and uh, it would help his sales and his reputation. And uh, he, he, he was a very forward-thinking man with regard to promotion, it looks to me. Looking between the lines and not wanting to, to dish the, the Dishley, if you like, but uh, he was some somewhat of a show-off, I think, Bakewell, as you said. He did like to have his animals parading out there in their best clothes, and he'd have had some damn good stockmen in there, I'm sure, that were looking after these these trials and these various things and and, uh, and turning these sheep out to perfection, which is uh, it's a lesson to all of us, isn't it? You've got to put the You've got to put the gift wrapping on these things as well. Um, of course you are, yeah. Another thing you mentioned briefly that pioneering was that this uh, the ram letting, something that had never been done before. And, and, of course, that further advanced his product because he could let rams out to similar flocks or flocks maybe of his own breeding and then he could see how they performed in their flocks and it would give him chance to spread the genetics of his dishly sheep uh, out and make some money out at the same time, which was uh, uh, pretty smart. And then, as you said, that... 
moved on to the to the creation of the the formation of the Disney Society, which uh, which you mentioned earlier on, and probably can be considered as probably one of the earliest breed societies of all time, if we can if we can call it a breed society. Yes, I'm sure. Yes. Well, well, even though he stocked his farm well, he was well aware that it's a numbers game and more data that he could collect, the better. And that's what much encouraged him, I think, to keep um, his breeding stock out and about so that then he could keep an eye on the performance at other places and add to the database. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and as well as the formation of the district Society, there would have been originally a small ram sale at Leicester going back the way, and uh, he'd turned that then into a show and sale, and, and a whole bidding system was set up there with rules in place, as you said, where he would prohibit the, the best rams being let to other top producers that he didn't want to get them to get the genetics. So uh, a smart move, really, but uh, yeah, they were probably the beginnings of Leicester Show. Going, going back to the letting of these sheep, it certainly was profitable. And in 1768, it said that he earned £1,000 for letting out 20 rams. Now, that's not a bad trade, even by today's standards. You can rent them out for, for 20 rams out for, for a grand and then uh, and still got the rams at the end of it. And, and uh, by 1789, um, he and, and his partners in the society took upwards of £10,000 for letting out their rams. And I think that's... Uh, I don't know why we're not still doing this, to be honest to me. That sounds a pretty good way of, uh, mm-hmm. of earning mm-hmm. some money. Let somebody else look after them for the winter and then uh, then having them back in the summer and doing it again the following year. You know? But but he would, yeah. these would only go out to the top, top breeders, though, wouldn't they? He wouldn't just let them out to everybody. And uh, the society was quite a prestigious thing, I think, with members from high society, such as the Duke of Bedford and, and a lot of, of dignitaries. But the graziers, the the, the, the basic fattener people, they, wouldn't, they would hire rams themselves, but they would be hiring, obviously, lesser rams for a fraction of the price and i suppose we can liken that a bit like today's high-flying pedigree prices which are so far removed from the the price of lamb at the butchers and and, and therein hangs a uh a, a um, controversial tale that uh perhaps we should talk about but of course what what he was doing and he was spreading those improved genetics which they clearly were and uh, improving well the nation's livestock by, by degrees. I mean, I saw some fascinating uh, figures produced. about Smithfield, about the, the meat market in Smithfield. And during Bakewell's lifetime, the average weight of carcasses that would have been traded there, like, improved dramatically from, from early in the 1700s. Beef carcasses were only, like, about 370 pounds, this would be. So, like, half of that in kilos nowadays. Um, lambs were around about 18 uh, pounds in weight, so, like, less than nine, eight or nine kilos per lamb carcass. And presumably then were two to three years of age as well. Mm. Um, but, but by the end of Bakewell's life, uh, by 1790 or so, I mean, these beef carcasses have got up to 800 pounds and the lambs up to 50 pounds. Yeah. So you, you can see that over that 100 years, the vast improvement of yield of, of meat in a given carcass was, was pretty dramatic. And um, it was people like Bakewell and was mm. uh, driving this improvement in British livestock. Sure. Yeah, yeah. we mentioned then he's got uh, sheep up to £290. So obviously, they are getting the big tops out there to, to help improve the, the general uh, commercial U, as it were. And we move on. Just You mentioned the heavy horses there quite rightly, Clive, that he's probably the father of the Shire horse. But he was in pegs as well in, in a fairly handy way too. I think he did the same with his, with his bacon and, and ham uh, carcass. 
analysis, and, and he was also hailed by many as the greatest breeder of cabbage of all times. So there's no end to this man's talents, really, is there? He was a genius without knowing it, I think. But the breed that I think he will be most famous for would be the development of the Longhorn, which uh, which we'll cover in, in a few seconds. And uh, But Bakewell wasn't without his troubles, was he? For all, an incredible man, uh, and looking at the economy and, and the, the, the way of producing animals more economically, unfortunately, he went bankrupt, and he was declared bankrupt in... Mm-hmm. 1776, so sort of midway through his term, if you like, um, from a combination, they said, of the cost of all his experiments. I mean, you don't go and dig a canal through the middle of your farm for nothing, do you, and all the other experiments mm. he's doing. And his exuberant entertaining, so seemingly his sister Hannah and himself would put on some fairly lavish uh, um, entertaining events when they're inviting people round to, to look at the sheep, which uh, would be mm-hmm. that would be a, the best ticket in town to have all of that one, to go and look at some sheep and then uh, get entertained. Yeah. Well, uh, I think I think it was open house, Andy. I mean, I think like if anybody come there with, with good interest, Tent. He he was an excellent host with his sister, and 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 I mean it was all about spreading the word. And I mean I suspect um, in all these dealings he had he had a few bad debts come his way. I heard a little story about that he'd he'd hired a bull out for about fifty pounds for the season. Unfortunately, the farmer who had hired him died during the season. The executors moved in, didn't know that this was an hired bull. Got him sold for eight or ten quid, and then when Mr. Bakewell turns up to pick his bull up and finds that he's gone and indeed slaughtered. Well, it became a court case, mm. which, which on reputation, apparently he won. But there was probably a goodly number of incidents where animals returned um, not as fit as they should have been, and we can all uh, concur with that happening. Um, and, and some go missing and some die natural causes mm-hmm. um so like it, it wouldn't all be profit and as you say his methods of doing it in the experiments would add to the cost because there would be some failures along the way as well i'm yeah. sure which is uh, how we all learn mm-hmm. and uh, so yes he, he did uh, come uh, under some financial stress in his life um, but I think he was big enough and, and good enough to get out of it, and um, well, I'm it, still very pleased what he's left behind. It, it, it seems that with the, the state of the agriculture probably wasn't great at that time either, and I think it was a culmination of those things, but yes, he was held in such a, a high esteem by his peers that uh, they all rallied round and, and paid his debts off, so uh, somebody must have thought a lot of him, Clive, in the same way that you do, maybe the oldest bunged a tenor here and there, but I believe uh, was it the Duke of Bedford, I think, threw in a couple of hundred quid, so uh, between them they, mm. they they bailed him out and, and he carried on going so that's good and, and mm. we also mentioned while we, we're talking about the great man here he took in students and uh, you touched on it earlier on uh, George Cully who was then went on to be a, a very successful uh, shorthorn breeder who you'll, our listeners will have heard about in our in one of our previous podcasts and then subsequently firstly Charles Collins and then Robert Collins so the, the Collins brothers so you've got, probably got three of the top shorthorn breeders in, in, in the beginning of the shorthorns who all used his methods to develop the shorthorn breed, which I think in turn could have been said to have caused the demise of the longhorn breed. So uh, it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes. Uh. Yes, it is, it is, Andy. But it, it is said of him uh, in his life, um, it was his materials that failed and not his principles, because those three gentlemen that, you, that, um, that you've mentioned were, were very close contacts with him. They would have learned so much from him and therefore what is why they uh, in turn became successful stock people. 
Yeah. Um, Clive, although Bakewell is considered to be the father of the Longhorn, and subsequently many other breeds in the UK, the Longhorn actually does predate Bakewell by a, a couple of hundred years, going back to medieval times, I believe. And there was there was talk of Charnwood Forest, which covered at the time 18,000 acres of the Midlands, uh, where these Longhorns would roam almost feral, I think, up until, and maybe after Bakewell's time as well. Some of these early breeders mm-hmm. would ride out and admire the breed in their natural habitat. So they, these things had been around, hadn't they? He, he was improving them, but he wasn't inventing them. No, no. Although the reason he used Longhorns for his uh, beef production experiments is because they were there and available to him. They'd be, they'd be highly popular in, in the Midland counties, but but had spread throughout. I think they were probably, arguably, first developed in the north of England and um, probably up the west coast in Westmoreland, Cumberland, and but spread and... Um, they're, they're part of our sort of uh, primitive range of cattle that have. They're mostly identified by the white finch that runs along their spine down through their tail. So we've got other examples like in the Gloucesters or the Irish Moyle, for instance, who, who are similar to, to that. Um, and and so so you know that's why I think Bakewell was associated with the Longhorn breed because they'd become uh, very popular in Midland counties. They'd be all around him, um, and. Uh, what he cleverly did with them was select what he felt was the best and particularly to drive his methods onwards and forwards. Um, and he did it most successfully and uh, the, the breed become extremely popular in his lifetime. Uh, that was the problem. There probably wasn't a heir to go on and uh, develop the breed further. Um, then with his work with what became shorthorn breeders, of course, um, they were a bit more practical in their, in their methods simply because of the horns. Um, as a result, uh, probably uh, well outnumbered the longhorns and uh, indeed the, the, the longhorn breed become extremely rare in the middle of the 20th century or just before. And um, we'll it's, it's a great, it's a great attribute to the people that have stuck with them and moved on into the breed and developed them into the modern breed that they now are. One thing our listeners might be thinking is if he was such an advocate of line breeding and inbreeding, maybe he should have married his sister, but uh, it's possible. <laughs> <coughs> well, I think, his sister, I think it was his sister that married because his nephew did follow him, but um, <laughs> perhaps he was better at... Well, breeding people, you're right, possibly. And the, the actual, going back to the Longhorn, the actual founder of the Longhorn breed could be considered a guy called Sir Thomas Grizzly from Burton-on-Trent, and his pure herd was established around 1700, so we are talking you know, quite a considerable time earlier. And then a chap called John Webster of Canley, who bought his stock from Sir Thomas. So those were the two original breeders, and uh, the, the latter one of those bred a bull sold as a yearling to a, a Mr. Bloxledge, uh, and then the bull bred that well that uh, he purchased him uh, back again. Um, after realised how well he was breeding, and after a couple of seasons, this this bull Bloxledge, as he became known, was sold a couple of more times to a few other people as well. So leaving stock in three mm. or four herds, and uh, and Webster went on to become the incidentally the high sheriff of Warwickshire, and coincidentally is buried in Stonely Church, which is uh, right next to the Royal Showground, which we'll go on to in a second. Is probably somewhere yeah. where the, well, the breed took yeah. the revival from. And, so it goes round. And of course, it was the blood bloodlines of those two breeders that you mentioned that that, that Bakewell picked up on yeah. really, Andy. So, so they certainly did have a big influence in the merits of the breed, and uh, and Bakewell, as you said. Started 
started his herd with two heifers from Canley and a bull from Westmoreland, and along with George Chapman of Nuneaton, another guy we'll talk about in a second, these three breeders would exchange blood for many generations. So for all he was the, the master breeder, he did have people a bit like some of these the, the breeders almost where they've got a cartel where they're just exchanging sheep between or exchanging sort of animals between two or three and then buying their, their own blood back in without actually getting too far afield from, from the gene pool. And I mentioned earlier on about the, the letting of sires and of course this game became a huge benefit to, to the growth and improvement of the Longhorn breed. Local shows like Market Bosworth were uh, revised and included animals for hire as well as for sale so you could basically rock up and just uh, like a shop almost and pick I want to hire that one I want to hire that and and re- I realized of course my, I had a neighbor called uh, Ray Godwin Clive of course with a neighbor of yours as well and of course the the, the, yeah. the hiring of bulls carried on because the race I remember Ray still still hiring bulls out through of course into the 90s that was a great thing. What really scuppered that trade is all the modern-day requirements of uh, movement license and disease control. Um, certainly, Ray, who was a you know a really popular fellow in the Midland Counties and well beyond, and quite a character, wasn't he? Excellent chap. So the shows like Market Bosworth, of course, they they were. They, they included animals for hire as well as for sale, and, and uh, that show eventually merged into the Leicester County show some decades later that uh, that Peter alluded to. And, and longhorns could also have been found in Ireland at the turn of the 19th century, and as in a lot of breeds, I suppose, and, and seemingly there were some damn good ones there, and uh, suppose that some of these had been exported a few hundred years earlier and then improved upon uh, in parts by men you know, across the land there, but Bakewell admitted there were some excellent longhorns in Ireland, and even more so after he sold them a whole tomb of his own cattle in 1771. And Bakewell also reports in selling a bull to Jamaica, which uh, just how a Jamaican came across and found him, I don't know, but the bull went to Jamaica and it thrived in their climate there for 12 years before the buyer eventually came back and bought another one. So a uh, pretty versatile yeah. versatile breed if you can live in Jamaica. There's not, not a lot to eat over there, I wouldn't have thought. If we take a closer look at Bakewell's efforts, it's pretty obvious that his methods were revolutionary, as Clive said. And until that time, improving a breed basically meant using females from the local facility and then outcrossing those with a with a bull from somewhere else. And the legendary Bob Adam, I remember uh, reading a uh, speech that he gave about line breeding to the New Zealand Aberdeen Angus conference. And um, Bob said he described this haphazard practice of, of as a union of nobody's son with everybody's daughter, which I think is a great phrase for just randomly breeding things. And I realised that phrase that he used then, he'd stolen from one of uh, Bakewell's contemporaries 200 years earlier. So uh, th- these guys weren't having that. Everything was bred by, by a method and everything was bred, was bred close, wasn't it? Studying his methods, it's... Quite remarkable how, with the use of intelligent line breeding, he did redevelop the breed out of all recognition in such a short period, really. And that's the, it's the, long, it's, it's the length of time, as Clive said earlier on. Uh, but we did say that you know, he had some big cattle to work with, and if he's looking to lighten the bone and bring them down a little bit, it, w- it would prove a little bit easier than going in the other direction. And, and we mentioned earlier that Bakewell was quite secretive about his practices, and this could be put down to the fact that not everybody agreed, of course, with line breeding, with close meetings that, that he was working with, stating them as being irreligious which basically means it was immoral doesn't it and um but this does it makes it quite difficult to chart the pedigrees of his early cattle and i know clive came uh, somewhere which i think we'll put on our facebook page later of of the 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 breeding of one of the early bulls and how you know the exact pedigree of it as it was as it was shown but uh we mentioned that he started with two heifers and and bred up from those but there would be others wouldn't there? they'd be they probably would have been longhorns at dishley before he bought these two good ones i suppose and they all would have come into the mix wouldn't they 
Yeah, well, I, I'm sure he did, Andy, because he'd need the numbers to stock the farm, so he'd be certainly working with more than a couple of breeders. But I, I think, like as we all experience when we're breeding stock, we have different lines, that are, are various lines that are more successful. And I think in those Webster efforts that he, he picked up, that's definitely what happened, because uh, that, that animal that um, you referred to, that's very closely bred, or the way that he, he put that those genetics in a very close breeding program uh, was developed from a bull that he had called Two Penny. Mm-hmm. And I, I I have picked up somewhere that uh, that bull got his name, which which reflects um, that uh, Bakewell had a bit of a sense of humour as well, in that this bull wasn't perhaps uh, the greatest looking in the world, <laughs> although I have, I, I have heard that uh, he, he was brought through the back. And I mean, what more do you want in a beef animal? Uh, but uh, but somebody commented to, to him that they wouldn't give him tuppence for this bull, <laughs> and that's why his name was Two Penny. And, and he was basically mating that bull to his own daughters and over several generations. And it, it eventually developed into some of the you know, of that time, some of the best performing stock, particularly a bull uh, called Shakespeare, who, who who was very well, I think he made 400 guineas during his life and used for over a long period of, of time as well. So a long-lived bull, longevity was important. Um, and so it was a recipe that worked. And, and I, one of the earlier bulls I've got uh, recorded here is called Old Cumley, and he lived to the age of 26. So you're right, the longevity, and I believe he was eight of one of those Webster heifers, but uh, there are conflicting reports about his uh, his parentage, as there are about the bull Twopenny as well. So I think, I suppose that's the beauty of improving a breed, really, when nobody's watching over your shoulders exactly what you're doing. Is you can uh, you can use another bull that out the other field that maybe wasn't quite quite what uh, what you said he was, and and got away with him. Can't blame the guy with this. At the end of the day, it's, it, he's, he's starting with a hybrid and creating a, an, an exact and improved breed because of course what with the with the long horns andy we aren't quite so well documented as the other breeds certainly like for the short horns and herefords for, for instance and the devons mm-hmm. that had er, earlier herd books the the, the long horn society didn't emerge until uh, the late 1800s and as a result um you know the the, the herd book wasn't printed and then you know because of the sort of um demise of the breed you know not many volumes of the herd were 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 developed so therefore they, well you haven't got that back breeding record that one can refer to um but but um as we move forward with this great story and peter tells a bit about how he established his own herd at fishick there i mean you will see that uh, what they're doing now is is, is superbly engineered and mm-hmm. we're very well managed by some very dedicated stock people okay. Well, Clive, thank you. I'm going to stop you there. Uh, We are looking forward to carrying on and listening to the history of this great longhorn breed and having on the programme great breeder Peter Close, who uh, is still at the top of the breed now. And he has a lot of information going through from Bakewell's time through till uh, the modern day. So I think we're going to break this one into another episode and uh, we'll catch up with you all in a few days there. Clive, thanks for your time. I really hope you've enjoyed hearing about the great Robert Bakewell and his fantastic contribution to the livestock world and uh, certainly fascinates me every time I hear and read about him. And uh, again, thanks to my guest for, as usual, his unparalleled knowledge in that subject. And we'll, uh, we'll look forward to chatting to you again another day. Thank you. Yeah, and Happy New Year to you and everyone, Andy. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales. And as always, this week we were kindly sponsored by Harbro, manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition and nutritional advice. Visit their website for more information or follow them on Facebook. And while on the subject of Facebook, please tune into our Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where there should be some photographs and documents to back up this week's and other episodes. 